is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Let's check in with our old buddy, Alex Lawson. Alex is the executive director of Social Security Works, socialsecurityworks.org, and strengthensocialsecurity.org. His uh, personal Twitter handle is ALaw202 or SSWorks. And Alex, welcome back. I understand that Donald Trump has launched a last-minute attack on Social Security. Tell us about it. Yeah, as you know, Tom, he's been attacking Social Security the entire time he's in office, but he really has accelerated it, you know, got his wrecking crew on their way out the door to try to ram through a bunch of rules. And the way the process works is if they can get them through, you can't just turn them right off in a new administration. It actually takes the process necessary. So these are bad, bad attacks on Social Security. One of them just in a couple days is going to, the rule is going to go through. It replaces the administrative law judge who are independent judges that look at casework and make a determination with basically political people. And so you could see someone like Donald Trump in the future saying, you know, deny all cases. And these political people with no independence would do that. It's really undermining a core part of Social Security. And then there is the continuing disability review, which we've spoken about on your show before. The CDR, when Reagan put it in, it led directly to tens of thousands of deaths. And it basically rips people's Social Security benefits that they've already qualified for, their disability benefits, away from them. And they are doing everything they can to get this in. We are doing everything we can to legally stretch that into the next administration because it's easier to stop the train than to reverse it and send it in another direction. But i just sort of end with this one. We won't be able to do anything if the incoming Biden administration does not clean house at Social Security Administration. On day one, we need to fire, ask for the resignations, get rid of Andrew Saul, the commissioner, David Black, the deputy commissioner, and their henchman who's actually driving this, Mark Wachowski. He's the guy who has the vision to do this stuff on the way out the door. It's critical that the Biden administration understand that if they don't get rid of these guys, even under a new administration, all of these rules will actually be implemented. And all of our work delaying it will have been for naught if he doesn't clean house on day one at the Social Security Administration. And let's make it very clear, this is not evil Donald Trump. The Republican Party institutionally, top to bottom, since 1935, has hated Social Security, has done everything they can Mm -hmm. to kneecap Social Security. Republicans used to give at least lip service. I mean, Eisenhower gave lip service to Social Security and didn't actually try to destroy it. But I think he was the only Republican president in the 20th century that that's true of. Every other Republican president has done everything they can to damage Social Security. And Americans need to realize this. They need to understand this. And Americans who are under 65 need to realize that what you're talking about right now, Alex, is not the retirement benefit. It's not, you know, it's not the stuff for old folks. This is a program that if you're 25 years old and you get in a car accident and you're paralyzed for the rest of your life, this is what's going to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, it just... We know how this works, Tom. If they can destroy one part of Social Security, it's not like they stop. They are 
hell-bent, as you said, the entire Republican Party. There are no good actors on Social Security, and they will not stop until they've dismantled the whole thing. And again, they're attacking people who are current beneficiaries' benefits, but most of these attacks are actually going to impact younger folks most of all. And the shift of what people have paid in versus what the Republicans want to allow out the door, which is nothing if they got their way, but as little as possible, you know, that's aimed at younger people. And younger people Mm -hmm. should understand that, that the younger you are, the bigger the cuts to your benefits that you've been paying for are going to be if we don't turn this entirely around and we let people. I want to just do a little history lesson. I know your listeners know this, Tom, but remember, uh, Barack Obama did not actually get rid of George W. Bush's Social Security commissioner. Bush's commissioner was in for the majority of Barack Obama's eight years in office, and Barack Obama never appointed his own Social Security commissioner. So, in fact, Republicans have controlled the Social Security administration basically unchecked in modern times until you go all the way back to Bob Ball. So this is a huge deal, and we're sort of in the end game of that decades-long assault. We need Biden to do the exact opposite of what Barack Obama did and to clean house on day one and to get people in there who understand the importance of Social Security to everyone today and to the future. And you look around at what's going on right now with COVID, with employment, and Social Security is going to be more important in the future than it even is right now. And it's critical right now. There's going to be millions of young people who are going to be permanently disabled by COVID. Dementia, heart damage, lung damage, kidney damage that is not reversible from all indications. And these are the people, this is the next generation that's going to be on Social Security disability. And it's really hitting hard people in their 20s, 30s and 40s right now. And the last thing, Alex, that I'd like you to riff on a little bit, if you're up for it, is why the Republicans hate this. There is one contingent within the Republican Party, you could call it the Koch brothers wing, that just thinks government doing anything other than running the police is socialism. And they are just opposed to socialism because socialism is funded by taxes on rich people, number one. But then there's a larger chunk within the Republican Party who are taking piles of money, and many in the Democratic Party as well, by the way, who are taking piles of money from private insurance companies who want to be the ones who are providing Social Security disability insurance. They want to be, you know, if you if you get disabled, and they want to be the ones who are taking your premium dollars. And then there are also a whole bunch of banksters who, you know, and Pete Peterson was leading the charge on this for years and years. He's dead now, but his institute lives on, who are saying Social Security is a program that should be administered by Chase and Bank of America. Your turn, Alex. Yeah, I think it's hard to build on that, but I will try. One of the questions is how real that first part is, right? Like, do the Koch brothers have an ideology or is it just greed? And I lean towards, you know, they have ideologues who work for them, but these are two people addicted to money. It's greed. They're the same as the Wall Street billionaires. They are. Yes. 
The Koch brothers as an institution, I would say, mm. is the same as Pete Peterson as an institution. They, you know, they make great common cause uh, in picking our pockets, in stealing our money. The very rich in this country really only have one industry, which is putting their hands in our pockets and taking our money. They do it in a variety of fashions, right? The Waltons pay poverty wages so that employees of Walmart are getting taxpayer-funded benefits. But this upward redistribution of wealth, in my view, Tom, is what it's all about. You have these plutocrats who understand that Social Security is the largest edifice that we have built as the people together against those plutocrats. And so they will do everything they can to destroy it. Yeah, I'm in. Alex Lawson, socialsecurityworks.org, so strengthensocialsecurity.org, uh, ALaw202, and SSWorks are the Twitter handles. Alex, always great talking with you, my friend. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And we'll be back with more of the news of the day in your calls in just a moment. Stick around. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Dan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind? Hi, I've been waiting since Monday to talk to you. I called in about an ad that is on TV right now. And it starts out uh-huh. with four sets of couples, kind of like in a scope situation. And they're talking about it's their time to sign up for the Advantage programs. It's sponsored right. by the HHS. I mean, we have the federal really? government. The federal government oh, is yeah. shilling for This started for with the Trump companies. administration. Yeah, the Trump administration started this under Seema Verma, as I recall. They changed the website. They started promoting Medicare Advantage. They made it harder to even get regular Medicare coverage because they fired or they gave early layoff to 10,000 people in the Social Security Administration who worked in the Medicare area. They are doing everything they can to make these giant insurance companies profitable. And Medicare Advantage is massively profitable for them to make them very profitable because those insurance companies recycle that money back to the Republican politicians as campaign contributions. But, you know, when you get the insurance companies and you look at the model, it's the same for everything that they insure. In other words, they have to discriminate. You get yourself a life insurance. They base it on how, your premium on how much, uh, how bad or good your health is. Same with a car. More expensive car, you're, you have to pay more. Houses, same thing. That is the model for insurance companies. So we cannot get rid of uh, pre-existing conditions until no, uh, Dan, that's the model. The com- that's company. the model for insurance companies who want to make a profit. Right. But I would well, submit yeah. to you that health insurance is not should not be an industry um, outside of you know luxury stuff for people who want health insurance that covers things like you know I get a private suite when I go to the hospital or a private jet to fly me home from wherever I am. Health Something insurance to be should be done a public about that. utility. Something needs yeah, it to be should done be for about- everybody. 
I agree with you. Health insurance, and this is the essence of Medicare for all. We're all in one giant pool. We all share the same expenses. We'll be right back. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Today we're reading from The Truth About Social Security, the Founders' Words Refute Revisionist History, Zombie Lies, and Common Misunderstandings by Nancy J. Altman. This is from Chapter 5, page 239. It's titled, In the Immortal Words of Yogi Berra, This is Deja Vu All Over Again. The last chapter ended with a call to expand Social Security, consistent with the Founders' vision. Whether to increase or decrease Social Security's modest benefits, whether to add new protections or take current protections away, and whether to retain or change Social Security's fundamental structure are questions of values and collective choice. An overwhelming majority of Americans have always supported Social Security, valuing the basic security it provides by pooling risk. They understand that there are some undertakings that the government does better than the private sector. Security, both physical and economic, is one of them. To promote economic security in this world, and indeed around the world, government-sponsored insurance has proven to be extremely effective. Indeed, more than 170 countries have enacted their own version of Social Security. Americans appreciate that our Social Security system's benefits are earned and that work is a condition of their receipt. Indeed, the values that underlie Social Security are basic American values. Reward for work, individual responsibility, shared participation, risk and benefit, responsible, prudent financing, and protection of our families. Those of us who want to see Social Security remain strong and see its modest but vital benefits expanded can triumph as long as we are engaged and informed. To win, we must be vigilant, hypersensitive to the goals and tactics that those who would like to see our Social Security system dismantled brick by brick. Though opponents' tactics have changed somewhat over time, their goal has been constant. This chapter will analyze in detail both the goals and tactics of opponents throughout Social Security's history, so supporters of Social Security are well-informed and armed. A small minority has always believed that all but the neediest individuals should be completely on their own, and has long fought a campaign against Social Security. People holding those views want, as lobbyist Grover Norquist vividly remarked, quote, to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Those who oppose Social Security have always been a tiny fraction of Americans, but they have an oversized influence because they are generally people of great wealth. President Eisenhower astutely explained in a November 8, 1954 letter he wrote to his brother just who these opponents of Social Security are and what he thought of them. Quote, 
Should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security and unemployment insurance, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, and a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. End of quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Some members of that tiny splinter group are libertarians who want to be free of all constraint. Others are wealthy individuals who don't believe they need to pool their risk because they are wealthy enough to self-insure, and they don't want the cost associated with a collective program of insurance. Still others are unenlightened business people who define their self-interest narrowly with no consideration for the common good and want to increase their profits and wealth by reducing the cost of mandatory contributions to government. And others are people who make their living from Wall Street and recognize that if people were not receiving Social Security, they would purchase more stocks, bonds, annuities, and other financial interests in the private market in an effort to protect their economic security. What unites all of these opponents is the desire to undo universal government-sponsored insurance in the form of Social Security and Medicare. People who share these views sought to defeat Social Security when it was first proposed, and when that proved unsuccessful to change its basic structure and function as described below. The history of Social Security shows a continuous chain of opposition, but with different actors over time, of course. Interestingly, in some cases, the most prominent opponents over time have been related. The progeny of some of the wealthy opponents in the 1930s are still fighting Social Security today. The grandfather of President George W. Bush, who sought to radically transform Social Security in 2005, was a man named Prescott Bush, a contemporary of President Roosevelt. He once remarked of Roosevelt, quote, the only man I truly hated lies buried in Hyde Park, end quote. Similarly, the father of one of the highly ideological Koch brothers, Charles and David, who have financed efforts aimed at dismantling Social Security, was a Texas newspaper publisher who used that position to rail against Social Security and other New Deal programs. Opponents and supporters have not fallen neatly into political party affiliation. Among the electorate, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents alike have always supported Social Security because they've understood how important it is to their economic security and to our nation. In addition, once Social Security was established, some Republican leaders like President Eisenhower have supported the program, at least in limited foundational size. In recent years, though, the Republican Party has endorsed proposals to dismantle Social Security, despite the claim made by virtually all Republican politicians that they support it. Moreover, as the mistaken view of Social Security as a drain on the federal budget and economy gained traction in the last few decades, some Democratic leaders have, perhaps unwittingly, pushed for changes that would undermine and weaken Social Security's protection as well. Nevertheless, Though not all Democrats supported Social Security, nor all Republicans opposed it, support for Social Security over its history has largely come from Democrats, opposition from Republicans. The truth about Social Security. Kathy in Seattle. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. Um, hey, I've heard you talk about the Medigap program before, and I've been interested in it, and I've looked into it, but I can't seem to find, I don't know how to hook onto it without going through a private provider. Is there something that I'm not missing about this? Can I go directly to the government or something? How, you know, I just don't know what to do about that, yeah. and I'd like to get it. Sure. Yeah, because we all need to avoid Medicare Advantage. All those ads on TV every day for Medicare Advantage are there because it's a massive ripoff that makes a lot of money for the insurance companies, and that's how they're paying for all those ads. You want to avoid that. 
But Medigap, when Medicare was created back in 1967, the Republicans said, we can't pay 100% of people's costs because if we do that, seniors will abuse the system. They'll hang out in the doctor's office all day long. So they've got to have some, quote, skin in the game. So they put an 80% hole, excuse me, a 20% hole in Medicare. Medicare only pays for 80% of all expenses. Medicare is part A and B, you know, do- hospital and doctor expenses. So that remaining 20% gets filled in with insurance from actual insurance companies called Medigap plans. The way that I got mine was I looked at the websites of a half a dozen different insurance companies and picked the policy that I liked from a company that I like, and I pay them directly. I, you know, I don't have an agent who does it for me. It's just a very straightforward process. I would add that when you're looking at insurance companies, Insurance companies that have the word mutual in their name are a different kind of insurance company than regular insurance companies. You know how credit unions, you know, there's no owner for a credit union. Every, if you invest money in a credit union, you become one of its owners, basically. They're, they're like co-ops. Mutual insurance companies are the same way. Ben Franklin started the first mutual insurance company in the United States in Philadelphia in 1757. And they still exist. In fact, the one he started still exists in Boston. And so I always have a preference for mutual insurance companies because I know that, you know, they're not paying dividends to their stockholders. So they're going to they're going to be more concerned with me as a policyholder. So, you know, there's uh, Mutual of Omaha is one. I know Aetna and United Healthcare, who I just don't like or trust as a company, but they have a policy that they sell through AARP. It, there's a bunch of them. So, Kathy, I would say just, you know, start browsing their websites. You can also, uh, sometimes if you put a couple of different names in, be sure you use Medigap, not Medicare, into a search. You can find people who are kind of ranking them and rating them. Did I answer your question? Well, that's kind of what I've already put together. But I still, you still have to go to a major insurance or provider to get it. You can't go directly to the government is what I'm saying. That's correct. The government does not provide Medigap insurance. You have to buy it in the private marketplace, you know, because the Republicans insisted on it. So, I mean, this is, you know, Bernie's uh, Medicare for all. His step one was do away with that 20 percent hole. Right. Make it 100 percent. So. So that's the plan, Kathy. Kathy, thanks a lot for the call. Great question. So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about exactly why rich people, I'm talking about people who make more than a million dollars a year marginally and over $3 million a year, you know, that group totally, why this group of people who are multi-multi-millionaires and are making, literally bringing into the house over a million dollars a year and over $3 million a year, Why would they want to destroy Obamacare? Turns out there's a very simple answer and a very straightforward answer and a rather shocking answer that they would put all this time and effort, years of work, into trying to kill Obamacare and throw 20, 30, 40 million people off their health care. And you can see it, hear it, read all about it, as it were, over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out there. Mary in Mill Creek, Washington. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? 
I wanted to talk about an experience we had this last week with my daughter for insurance. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because what I saw happen as a result of it is the people who heard the story from her, their attitude was, screw universal health care. Now, I am a proponent of universal health care, but I wanted to share with you and see if you have some insights you could offer. First of all, she was on the state exchange. She's a small business owner. And she picked up one of these policies. I'm a nurse. I've never even heard of the insurance. What ended up happening is the noon, the day before her hip replacement surgery, they canceled because they couldn't come up with a, the company was so small, the insurance company, that they didn't have contracts set up with any surgical centers in this area. So they had to negotiate all those terms individually. And so what ended up happening is they signed off and approved for the surgeon and for the anesthesiologist, but not the surgical center. What we found out was, well, you know, the surgical center's got to make some money, right? So then in the meantime, what we found out as we dug through was this state policy, all they are is just somebody who is implementing state Medicare. So they're not going to reimburse for anything more than what Medicare reimburses. Not Medicare, but Medicaid, hmm. I mean. Medicaid, and yeah. so, and that's, of course, not going to be enough. So my concern is people came away and said, well, God, if this is what the state, if this is what state insurance is going to be or the universal health care is going to be, you know, this sucks. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. Keep in mind that the insurance, their job, um, you know, we need to keep these insure, or if we keep insurance companies, if that's the way people are going to go, because kind of Biden care, Biden healthcare is not saying Medicare for all. They're saying there's a place for uh, public option, but also insurance. My experience working in the industry and with this is that the insurance cannot coexist efficiently with Medicare for all. So it's like we're going to have to, I mean, as much as I appreciate how Biden is trying to bridge the gap with the progressives and the liberals, Uh I get that. But we've got to figure something out because this transition and doing it both ways is going to kill universal health care. Because if people keep going through this kind of crap when you're sick Mm -hmm. and you're vulnerable and you've got to try to go and fight to get coverage, people are going to go, if this is what I'm getting from the state, I'm not going to do it, which is the wrong. That's a very shallow takeaway. That's the yeah. shallow takeaway. But I, you know, how do agree. we get past it? How do we get past Well, that? I think that we, we just need to make it very, very clear that we need Medicare for all, Mary, and that we need to reform mm-hmm. Medicare so that it no longer has a 20 percent hole in it that requires Medigap insurance. And we need to outlaw Medicare Advantage, which is a privatized form of Medicare where they, they play the same games. They throw people off. A friend of mine has prostate cancer in New York and can't get treatment because he has a Medicare Advantage plan. He can't get a Medigap policy any longer because once you sign up for Medicare Advantage, unless you're really, really lucky, you can never get off it. And then they've got you for the rest of your life and you're screwed. So it's a difficult one. And Mary, you've identified a real serious problem. And I think at some point the American people are going to go enough already. You know, just give us a program like every other developed country in the world where we can get health care. Chuck in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Yeah, good morning. I was uh, had a question. What if uh, private insurance was to just cover all the routine health problems, you know, like the appendicitis, gallbladders, et cetera? Wouldn't it keep premiums lower and because they'd have lower expenditures? 
and all that. However, if you have a catastrophic case, that would have to go to a national pool like Medicare or whatever to avoid, you know, people getting bankrupt and everything. And would that work? And I've talked to some hardcore Republicans that thought that was a that thought was a pretty good idea. What what do you think? Well, that's basically what Trump's plan is, is that, you know, catastrophic care insurance be what everybody has. And, uh, you know, it doesn't kick in until, you know, you hit five, 10, 15, maybe 50 or $100,000 in expenses, depending on who, you know, which, which day of the week he's talking about it and which Republican plan you're pointing to. But the problem, Chuck, is before the coronavirus and before, you know, 30, 40 million Americans lost their jobs, we had a situation in the United States where fewer than 40% of Americans could have dealt with a $400 expense. Fewer than a third of Americans could have dealt with a $1,000 expense. So, uh, you know, without, without, you know, significant financial dislocation or even the, you know, the, the risk of a loss of housing. So uh, going for catastrophic insurance in order to try to keep insurance prices down is going to doom well more, you know, well over half the population. And that's, that's the, that, that's the reason why Democrats are opposed to that. Cole in Denver. Hey, Nicole, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but if we lose Social Security insurance, we'll also lose disability insurance. And to my knowledge, there's no private insurance policy that you can buy at any price that'll give you long-term disability insurance, guaranteed income for life, and cover your health care. You're correct on all points. And, and that's the thing, you know, when I talk to young people, uh, you know, and they say, well, I don't care about Social Security. It's not going to be there when I get old anyway. I'm like, Social Security is covering you right now. If you're 17 years old, you've got a policy that will provide for you for the rest of your life if you get in a car accident and you end up paralyzed, for example, as has happened to a friend of mine. Yes, so, and yeah, um, yeah. there's no private insurance policy that you can buy to replace that. So just wanted to remind your viewers how important Social Security is. Amen. Amen. Well done, Nicole. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Roy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Roy, what's up? Tom, I have a solution for getting us on universal health care. Okay, okay, one, this is, everybody says this, just back up the age from 65 to 62, 60 every year. But this is the most important thing. Go by occupation. The important, difficult, dangerous jobs we have getting people for that foreigners are doing now. We get, we if you are five years in construction or forestry or fishing or farming, you are on Medicare. Do it by, and we'll gradually get everybody on. I figure it'll take 10 years if you go back up the age and do the occupation thing, adding occupations where Americans are needed to do the jobs and their physical jobs, all the physical jobs. Right, that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. You know, it, it would be a relatively simple tweak, I believe, 
to the Medicare law, and I'm basing this on Robert Ball, the guy who wrote that law, saying back in the 1960s that it would be a relatively minor tweak to change the age of eligibility of 65. Now Reagan has raised it up to 67, but whatever, uh, to change it from 65 down to zero. You know, and so I think it would be a relatively small tweak to the law to say that if you are designated an essential worker during the pandemic, which would be people who work in grocery stores, people who are, uh, you know, working in hospitals, people who are on the front lines, the delivery people, the Uber drivers, all of these folks. If you have been designated an essential worker during the pandemic, you are eligible to join Medicare for the rest of your life, regardless of your age right now. That's the essential principle. I should be running it. I also have other ideas. It should be there should be zones, not by states. When states get a hold of this federal money, there's so much waste like insurance. It should be like New England and the Mid Atlantic states. Uh, one Oh yeah, one doing office. things regionally. Yeah, yeah regionally, well, I, I'm with exactly. you. Right, right, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for sharing that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. On this week's Science Revolution, Vien Trong with Tom Steyer's Climate Justice joins the show with a vision for a green, red, and blue climate new deal. That vision includes Native Americans, a blue new deal for our threatened oceans, and a green new deal for our coastal communities. Dr. Michael Greger joins us. Have you gained a few COVID pounds in his new How Not to Diet cookbook? Dr. Greger tells how you can eat your way to a healthy, sustainable weight with plant-based meals. Terry Mills, president of the National Nursing Network, drops by on why a national nurse for public health is important. Plus, Laura Packard, the founder of Healthcare Voices, explains open enrollment under the ACA to help the 16-plus million uninsured Americans get themselves enrolled. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Charles in Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? For the past week or so, you've been talking about the Medicare Advantage. And there's one part of Medicare Advantage that nobody's talking about. And that is once you leave regular Medicare and go to one of these Advantage plans, you can never go back to regular Medicare. You can switch to another Advantage plan, but once you're out of regular Medicare, you're out for good. And nobody's mentioning that. My understanding, Charles, was that if you make that decision when you turn 65 and you want to go back to regular Medicare, there are huge penalties, but you can pull it off. The problem is that if you have any pre-existing conditions at that point, you can't get a Medigap policy, but that it is possible to go back to Medicare under some circumstances. I, I know one person who's done it. But that t- Medigap policy that fills in the 20 percent, if you're at all sick, if you've got any kind of pre-existing condition, they can now discriminate against you, whereas they can't if you buy, if, if, if you sign up for regular Medicare and a Medigap policy when you turn 65. Well, Does my understanding comport with your experience? Maybe regulations change since I last saw it. I looked uh-huh. at it like a year ago because I was looking to reduce yeah. uh, prescription costs. And when I looked at the Medicare Advantage and the fri- and what I read in the fine print, what I read was once you leave regular Medicare, you can never go back. You can switch to another Medicare Advantage during the open season right. as far as going back to regular yeah. Medicare. Well, 
They may have changed the rules during the Trump administration. I mean, they've been doing a lot of tinkering with Medicare and they've they've completely changed the Medicare Services Administration, whatever it's called, CMS. They are now openly promoting Medicare Advantage plans and downplaying Medicare itself. And and this is all an attempt, number one, to make more profit for the big insurance companies and, and further rip off the government. And also to get rid of and, Medicare. And, yeah. And secondly, yeah, they want to cripple Medicare because they're concerned that the Democrats are going to come along and say everybody can have Medicare. And at that point, you know, if more than half the people, I mean, right now, about a third of Americans over 65 are on a Medicare Advantage plan, and they are in for one hell of a rude surprise if they ever get sick. If they can crank that up to more than half of Americans, and they're doing their very best, I mean, look at all these TV ads, then that will provide them with the excuse to kill off Medicare altogether. Or that might just do it. Because, uh, you know, they may, they may just kill off Medicare altogether. So, it's, it's just, yeah, thanks a lot, Charles. Good to hear from you. Raven in Grants Pass, Oregon. Hey, Raven, what's up? There's been a lot of talk about health care and all this. So I used to be a census database manager and zip code coverage area manager of these databases. And it's like, the USPS adds and deletes zip codes all the time. So the zip code I used to live in, 92680, was deleted from that database. The managed care organizations do exactly the same thing. They, they add and delete zip codes all the time. So if, if you live in an area where there's going to be some kind of toxic waste dump or something like that or some kind of corporation that's going to you know pollute the area the healthcare organizations will not will will not cover you so that's my case for uh you know a national healthcare program yeah Second, wasn't that resolved under the affordable care act raven well I, I I'm not. If you do sure. business in a state, you can't you can't discriminate against people based on on region, you know, or, or anything else, race, gender, etc. But, but yeah, well, region. one would hope. Yeah, I think it was. I could be wrong. I'm you know, I don't know everything. I haven't looked into this specifically, but I'm pretty sure that that practice, which was you know one of the more egregious practices of the health insurance companies, you know, along with rescissions and all these other things. I think that that practice was outlawed. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is In Defense of Public Service by Cedric L. Alexander. The subtitle is How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. This is from Chapter 1, Civil Servants and Servant Leaders. Unelected public servants are found at all levels of government, federal, state, and local. But the modern model for all is found in the federal employment systems. More specifically, it is in the concept and operation of the federal civil service system, which governs the appointment and tenure of most federal workers. Those who believe that the unelected federal bureaucracy is a deep state covertly dedicated to the overthrow of elected government see the civil service as a fundamentally unconstitutional innovation, a monster of very recent creation. Such demonizing mythology aside, the truth is that the origin of the unelected government is found in the Constitution, under Section 2 of Article 2. The article defines the powers of the executive branch, and the second paragraph of its Section 2 assigns to the President the power to, quote, nominate 
and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, end quote. Thus, the president has the power to make all appointments not otherwise provided for in the Constitution. These are subject to the Senate's advice and consent unless Congress, by law, vests the appointment of such inferior officers as they may think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law or in the heads of departments, end quote. In other words, the unelected government, which I have called the fourth branch, is rooted in the Constitution through the powers that it grants either to the president or to Congress. In turn, Congress may grant the president, the courts, or heads of departments the power to hire unelected public servants. In all cases, however, the creation of the unelected government flows from the Constitution, the supreme authority and originating law of the nation. The framers of the Constitution recognized that the elected government of our republic was not in itself sufficient to govern us. It cannot alone get government done. It does not alone possess all the expertise necessary to lead, let alone manage, so vast an enterprise as a nation. If this was true in the late 18th century, it's even truer in the 21st century geopolitical and technological environment that is far more complex and that therefore requires a cadre of professionals possessing a wide variety of specialized skills, training, education, and experience. The Constitution does not call these appointments and hires a fourth branch, but that is what the federal service and other government workers constitute. De jure, in law, there is no fourth branch of U.S. government, yet it unquestionably exists de facto, in practice, in reality, in fact. Does the fourth branch compete with the three constitutionally established branches? No. It coexists with them as provided for in Section 2 of Article 2 of the Constitution itself. Those three constitutional branches are absolutely necessary to our republic, but they are not sufficient to it, as the framers acknowledged. Moreover, as I've already observed, for most people, most of the time, and in most situations, it is the member of the fourth branch who are, practically speaking, the government. They are the doers. They implement the policies created and interpreted by the three constitutional branches. What is more, although they do not decide or decree policy, they often influence it, not covertly, but by intention and design. The Constitution assigns the Senate the roles of advising on and consenting to most major presidential appointments, but members of the fourth branch do far more advising on a daily basis when it comes to providing the subject matter expertise and feedback necessary to formulate and modify policy decisions. As it turned out, following the coming into effect of the Constitution in 1789, the president, the chief executive, that is the elected official responsible for faithfully executing the laws, directly or indirectly appointed the unelected personnel whom he deemed necessary to execute government. Most of the agencies in which personnel of the unelected government served were created by the executive branch under Article 2. And for a full 170 years after the Constitution was ratified, the president had the unquestioned authority to appoint and to terminate what were, in effect, employees of his branch, the executive branch. Indeed, in 1789, Congress explicitly voted, by narrow margin, that it had no authority of approval or disapproval of presidential decisions to terminate appointees. 
Only those few public positions that were independent of the executive branch, which today are known as independent agencies, were not subject to presidential appointment or termination. In 1829, Andrew Johnson took, uh, Jackson excuse me, took office as the seventh president of the United States. He was regarded as the apostle of the rights of the common man, and he made it clear that he intended to usher in an area of a more highly participatory democracy. During his two terms and under his influence, many states substantially extended the still-males-only franchise by dropping property requirements from the ballot, and Johnson waged a mighty battle against the Second Bank of the United States in a successful effort to loosen credit and thereby free up sources for finance. In Defense of Public Service by Cedric Alexander. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Kent in Eagle Point. Hey, Kent, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah. Hey, I was just curious about if, in fact, we do win the House, the White House, and the Senate, what's the viability of um, making uh, Medicare people for, eligible for Medicare at birth? If they're going well, to take it away, just do that. Yeah. I mean, Biden is actually suggesting something like that. It's a, it's a halfway measure, but, you know, it's it's kind of Buddha judges or for that matter, President Obama's. It's what Obama campaigned on and and uh, would have had if it wasn't for Joe Lieberman taking over a million dollars from the insurance industry and selling out his Democratic colleagues, which was the public option, which is anybody who wants Medicare can get Medicare. And uh, on the other hand, if you want to have private health insurance, you can have private health insurance. And and I suspect that that's a backdoor. And this is why Republicans are so opposed to it. It's a backdoor way into Medicare, into Medicare for all. And so I and I think that we'll get there. I don't think that they're going to do a Bernie style Medicare for all right away. I think that'll be probably three, four or five years down the road. But I think the public option is going to be a good start. Kent, thanks for the call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Can I say this time about health care? Sure. Look, there are really only three choices. And the Republicans want to eliminate two of them. We have the pre-Affordable Care Act choice of employer-sponsored health care, which is how we've had health care up until the Affordable Care Act, where many people are left out. If you change jobs or you don't have a job, you don't have health care. The Affordable Care Act, they want to declare unconstitutional. I'm sorry, but that was the Republican plan. It was offered in 1993 by Chuck Grassley and all the Republicans as the health equity and Access Reform Today Act of 1993 was offered in the Senate as an alternative to Hillary Care. It was written by Milton Friedman and Heritage. They want to have it uh, declared unconstitutional. And then there's the, the types of universal health care systems that, are, that, that, that other countries, uh, Western countries, have all over the world. So, in other words, the Republicans want to declare the three alternatives. Two of them they don't want. They don't want Affordable Care Act, and they don't want socialized medicine. So, while they're stuck with... The alternative was go back to the employer-based health care exclusively. That's what they want. That's their only alternative. They even want to rub out their own alternative, which was, which was basically what the Affordable Care Act is and manifested as Romney Care in Massachusetts. They want to get rid of that. That was their idea. Yeah, and that's absolutely what they're pushing for, and and because that's the most profitable option for the health insurance companies who are pouring pouring money into their coffers, into their campaigns. Yeah, spot on, Paul. Thank you very much. Dan in Sacramento, California. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind? Republicans have basically broken our government. It doesn't work anymore. 
They can block everything. So the Democrats have to take it back. And, and the Republicans have done it in about a generation. And I believe there are two things that could take it back and make them go away until they're ready to come back and negotiate again. And one would be health care for all. If the Democrats could get that through, single-payer or Medicare, most Americans would say, golly, they did something for all of us. And that yeah. would... Put- you know, that has... Medicare for all has between 70 and 80% support on the Democratic side and over 50% support on the Republican side when it's not exactly. called Medicare for all. When you, when you exactly. simply say, should, you know, should everybody in America be able to have, uh, be able to buy into Medicare, um, you, you get over 50% support on the Republican side. Exactly. But here's another point, because the contractors don't have health care. Once you have health care in position, then, then, then the contractors will have health care, and that won't be an issue. I mean, I remember years ago when, when the Detroit moved up to Canada, and it was the reason because they had health care up there. They didn't want yeah. to pay for yeah. health care. Yeah, that was Toyota. And they, exactly. they moved their factory to Ontario, Canada, rather than uh, you had three, three, three states, excuse me, uh, in the United States competing for that. I think it was Ohio, South Carolina and Georgia, as I recall. And they were offering Toyota hundreds of millions of dollars in tax abatements. They were offering them free land. They were offering to subsidize their labor force for the first couple of years. And Toyota, at the end of the day, said, no, we're going to go to Canada because there's seventeen hundred dollars worth of health care in every car we make. That's yes. more yes. more expensive than the cost of the steel. And the, and the president of GM at the time came out. This was in 2006 or 2008. President of GM came out and said, yes, there's, you know, the, our cost of health care exceeds our cost of steel, which exactly. is crazy. I mean, it's just yes. crazy. And, and it wouldn't just help independent contractors, Dan, but, you know, probably about two thirds of all people in, in the United States, more than half of Americans now working, working full time or making less than $30,000 yes. a year. And but I'm guessing that of those people me, making less than 30000 a year, probably 90% of them don't have health care. Right. But the employers would love it. They wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. Sure. Yeah. It's a win-win situation here. And yeah, when the president of GM said we spend more on steel than health care, he was calling for a national health care program. Yes. Number two, campaign reform. Get the money out. You right, can't that's HR1. To, we cannot do anything until the money is taken out. I agree. Nothing will, go, nothing will move or move slowly. It has to be fixed. I agree. And as a result of Mitch McConnell packing the courts, the federal court system, um, exactly. you know, a quarter of all federal judges have been appointed by Trump, a third of all Supreme Court judges appointed by Trump. We're going to have to start talking about court, uh, about, uh, court stripping, about you know overcoming ju- uh, judicial review. And I predict this is going to be a big issue next year. Dan, thank you. That's why I wrote that book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, because I, I can just see this coming. I mean, this is, this is something that this has been a multi-year campaign by the Republicans. We have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. It's astonishing. Just think about this. This year alone, with this one source of revenue, according to Senator Bernie Sanders, quote, 
This year alone, we could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide face masks for everybody, produce the protective gear and medical supplies our health workers need for the pandemic, and fully fund the U.S. Post Office. Now, what is this magical thing that we could do that would produce enough money to do all these things? Fund the Internal Revenue Service. Republicans have cut its funding so badly since 2010 that fully a third of their enforcement is no longer happening. And tax cheats have walked off. They're basically refusing to pay over $260 billion in taxes this year. You can hear the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Just a few other details, a few other things that are going on in the country right now. Donald Trump has just launched another attack on Social Security. This uh, last minute change in the rules. You'll recall a few months ago, he tried to change the rules, the Social Security rules. And frankly, I'm not sure if he succeeded or not. He tried to change the Social Security rules on uh, disability, on long-term disability. And apparently that's what this is all about. Again, surprise, surprise. And uh, this uh, just weeks away, this is uh, from, oh, this is Common Dreams. Uh, Just weeks away from relinquishing power to incoming president-elect Joe Biden, the Trump administration is quietly launching a last-minute assault on Social Security by rushing ahead with a rule that, if implemented, would deny critical benefits to hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities. About 10 million people are getting Social Security disability checks every month, keeping them alive. And the Republicans are trying to cut that. They want to change, basically change the rules on what determines eligibility to keep people from getting Social Security disability. Why? Because people who go on Social Security disability are not millionaires, are not billionaires, are not big corporations. And, uh, you know, generally, well, who knows? I mean, there's probably a lot of Trump voters who are on Social Security disability but and don't realize that this is what Donald Trump is up to. But you can find that story at commondreams.org or if you, you know, you just plug it into uh, DuckDuckGo, you know, the search engine. You could probably find it in a dozen places. And, you know, I think it's really worth checking out. It's amazing. Oh, and this, I wanted to share this with you. The release of the PPP loan recipient details. Uh, this is shocking. I, you know, I don't know how to describe this beyond shocking I, it's just, uh, or astonishing or wh- whatever you want to call it. The Kushner companies were major recipients of PPP loans. 3.65 million were given to businesses with addresses at Kushner and Kushner real estate places. That's incredible. Dan in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Dan, what's up? Uh, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I say before I reached Medicare age, I was with uh, Group Health Cooperative in Seattle and very satisfied with their coverage and everything was in the same group. And then when I reached Medicare age, I stuck with Group Health Cooperative and did a Medicare Advantage program with them. I think it was something like 40 bucks a month. Group Health got bought out by Kaiser Permanente. And so I just continued with that. I've heard your comments on Medicare Advantage before. Now I've moved down to Vancouver, uh, Washington, and Kaiser is down here. And I'm just wondering about Medicare Advantage versus the just plain old Medicare and Medigap. I heard your earlier conversation, and I'm just wondering, what do you use for your Medigap coverage? Is that 
through an insurance company? Is that through the government? Yes. How does that yeah, work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the big insurance companies whose names you'd recognize that is not United Healthcare because I refused to do business with them after the way they tried to screw us when Louise had breast cancer. So something but, like Blue uh, Cross or what? Yeah, one of those companies whose names you'd recognize. I, I don't want to be basically right. advertising and, you know, and, a company here. But. So, I mean, I've always enjoyed the, in, the in referrals within the in-network coverage, and there's only been one occasion where I had to do something when I was out of town, and, and you know that, there was no problem with that whatsoever. But right. what type of bills are you looking at for, say, dental and vision and so forth in that? Well, they're not covered by Medicare or Medigap. Those are things that you, you know, I, I pay my eye doctor and I pay my dentist, just like most of my I see. Do. Okay. It's and a, and the, what does the Medigap cover then? Is that just... It covers, you know, all your, basically there's no, or maybe a minimal, I don't think there's any deductible when I go to the doctor and the deductibles around hospital visits are really, really small. I mean, I've had, I, I, I've had surgery while I was on Medicare. I mean, you know, it's, it, it works. The, the Medigap coverage is great. I'm very, very happy with it. Or the Medigap coverage. Yeah. And, you know, again, with Medicare Advantage, they're always going to be looking for a way to stick it to you because they are private for-profit insurance companies, and they've got to figure out a way to make their 20% edge. Medicare, keep in mind, runs on a 2% administrative overhead. The private for-profit companies run on a 20% administrative overhead. It used to be 30%. The Affordable Care Act cut it back, so they had to cut back a little bit on the dividends that they're paying their stockholders and the multi-million dollar, in the case of United Healthcare, billion-dollar compensation package for their CEOs. United Healthcare has had two CEOs make a billion or almost a billion dollars now in my lifetime, which is just breathtaking. So, you know, Medicare Advantage is always going to be, you know, they may have some bells and whistles that make it seem like a better deal, but they've got to take that, they've got to make that nut, that 20%. They've got to figure out a way to get enough money so that they can pay their CEOs, you know, 30 million bucks a year or whatever it is they're getting in compensation. And the only way they can do that is to take it out of your hiding mind. So, Dan, thanks a lot for the call. I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to name insurance companies on the air in, in a way that might imply an endorsement. Um, so, anyhow, thanks, uh, thanks so much for the call, Dan. Good question, and it's a question that I know a lot of people are struggling with. And we're getting bombarded by these Medicare Advantage ads. How do you think they pay for those ads? Where does the money come from to pay for those ads? It comes from saying no to somebody who got sick. In fact, every time you see one of these Medicare Advantage ads on TV, it should be a reminder that these people are paying for that by screwing seniors. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Albert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you, and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.